I'll call you Melinda. <laughs> <laughs> she can now. Yeah, I know. I, I That blew me away, the amount of money they're splitting up. I was just like, holy oh. shit. Ready, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the Pending Approval Podcast, a talk show highlighting the ups, the downs and the complete head fuck moments of the business world. I'm your host for the show, Glenda Wynyard, and producer G is here with me to keep me on track. Like you literally just counted yourself in. <laughs> we have to keep that in, Pat, make it happen. That was amazing. Uh, I'm good. Thank you. Another week, another day, another podcast. Well, G, we're going to be covering off all things business today. Now, speaking of business, anyone that owns or manages a business will love today's podcast. You're right, G-Dubs. We've got Kylie Murphy in the studio. Kylie's a business consultant and she assists Australian-owned businesses with their everything from their company structure and marketing all the way through to their supply chain. Welcome, Kylie. Hello. Hey, Kylie. I love Kylie, but she's so down to earth, really honest with her clients and has a lot of terrific business experience that she's willing to share with us today. So, Kylie, welcome. Thanks, Glenda. Thanks, G. Pleasure to be here talking all things business. Yes. So, Kylie, we always like to kick off the show with a little bit of a bio. So, Tell us your history. Okay, so showing my age, I've got over 25 years of retail and wholesale experience and I've been lucky enough to work with brands like Billabong, Montreal, Fila and also corporate retail companies like Just Group, Specialty Fashion Group. And, you know, I've been really lucky to work with some amazing people through my career. So now I'm focusing on my own thing and helping businesses, which is what I enjoy doing. Yeah, no, you really do. Now, we started first working together when you were on Rivers first, wasn't it? And then you moved across onto Millers. I was Millers and Rivers and Millers, yeah. yeah. At Specialty <laughs> Fashion Group. That God, that feels like ages ago, it doesn't does, it? It does, it does. It feels like a century ago, but it really isn't. So. Yeah. So we did all of that work together and you had a very specific role there. But now what do you actually do now? How about you tell our listeners? Yeah, so now I work with businesses, usually the owners, to really have a bit of a deep dive into their business and what's working and what isn't. Or sometimes it's not that it's not working. It can just be a little bit smoother so that you get more from your team and better results. So I'm the owner of a business or I'm a managing director of a business. How do I come to the realisation that my business needs somebody like you? Usually it's too late, unfortunately, is what happens. And that's a conversation I have frequently with people that I work with on advisory boards and different sectors. You get called in when there's a problem, whereas you can do preventative work as well with experts external to your business. So it depends what you need, but usually you start scratching your head on one topic and you're going, oh my God, I need help here. Who do I call on? Yeah. And then how do they go about finding you? Oh, that's the tricky part. For me, everything I do and have done has all been referral, everything I've done. So it's been somebody's talked to somebody they know and then I've been recommended, had a conversation with them and then off we go. There are sites out there that you can look for consultants in certain areas, but to make sure you get the right person, treat it like recruiting somebody into your team and reference check them. And I think that that's really important for people because they get a little bit nervous, don't they? When you're a business owner or you're leading a business and you don't quite understand, you really don't, you don't know, you don't know. And I think that's something that's really important. Yeah, it's very important. I guess word of mouth is like very important for everyone, right? Like even from an agency perspective, you could Google us, but you're never going to jump straight in with an agency if you don't know their work or you don't know someone that's worked with them. No, you need to build some trust. and But trust only comes through time and relationship building. You know, mm. your friends are through trust and relationship building and business is really no different. We're all human and I think that that's a big part of it. You need to spend a bit of time with people and if you're working with anyone as a consultant or an agent or like an agency like you guys, if the other party is not willing to put in a bit of time to build that relationship, well, they may not be the right partnership for you. 
Absolutely. So what industries do you actually specialize in? Because I've heard there's a little bit of fashion here. There's a little bit of everything. So, you know, what what would you say that you really focus on? It's hard to explain sometimes, but I really focus on product to consumer. And that can be any product, any industry, any market. My background has been more fashion and homewares and Electric scooters came into the mix in the in the middle of all of that. So it can be really any product, but it's the concepts that you need to apply to the business and, you know, what are the unique facets to that business. I guess it's important to have specific expertise, but is it more important for you to have that broader knowledge that you can apply to different industries, like you were saying before? Like kind of how can you position your ideas and where do you really get them from? Yeah, I mean, you draw on your past experiences a lot and that's where, you know, a lot of people say you have to come from that industry to add value, Mm. whereas I've seen in other areas, like say an advisory board, which is a slightly different space, in an advisory board, you can have technical industry experts, but you can have generalists as well. And it's their transferable skills that they bring to the table. So if it's... um, launching a new tech service, it's still a product to a consumer, whether that's B2B or B2C. So it's using those skills. But a lot of the time, businesses like to stick with people from their industry, but fresh eyes to a problem from a different industry could be quite disruptive. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And it's interesting that you bring up, you know, you're always marketing to a consumer, even if it is B2B, because that's how I feel when we're doing B2B campaigns. Yes, they're like consumers, but also they're marketers. And, you know, you're actually targeting people who are people at the end of the day. They're not just the businesses that they work for. Totally. And I think some people don't put enough thought into that in their strategy, you still, whether you're selling a service or a product or you're a wholesale business selling to many retailers, you've got to look at your approach and your strategy. And I don't think there's enough time put into that sometimes. And I think that cross-pollination is really important. I always say one of the biggest differences between advertising people and marketers is that even if you work for Coca-Cola, a great brand, but you're selling beverages. You know what I mean? Like it's non-alcoholic ready to drink beverages. Where in advertising, we're taking ideas from the car company or the garbage delivery or the whatever, and we're actually cross-pollinating constantly into cross-different brands that we work on and things like that, which I think is a really different kind of way of thinking. I think think it's really important to think that way. And everything's moving at pace. So if you're not aware of what's going on out there, you can't take those concepts and reinvent them into your space. And that applies to business strategies as it does to any marketing strategy. Mm. Look, I was mentioning this before, I struggle at times to open up to consultants, but I've found through my own experience that they are invaluable really, really invaluable at helping you get through times. And I think last year was a really good example where we used consultants to come in, really evaluate our business, help us move forward. And I think bringing in that outside perspective can really help you to do that. So if I'm a business owner and I've never really looked at working with a consultant and I've found somebody that I feel comfortable with, how do you kick off the process? Oh, look, I'm a big believer that the person going into a business needs to put a little bit of time and not invoice time. They need to put a bit of time into their research so that they come in with enough information about what they're doing. So if you've got somebody that's not willing to give you that time up front, I would question it a little bit because they're in it for the wrong reasons. I like to come into a business with a bit of knowledge. I probably get more information on what I need to to make sure I'm across what the business is about and it comes back to that relationship and trust if you're not building those foundations from the start of the relationship you're not going to really add the value you should and if you're in the space of consulting or advisory or that you really you're there to add value oh absolutely and is it a real collaborative process that you go through yeah big time. It's a, it's really collaborative and 
you know, bringing in a consultant's not like bringing in a temp where you show them what to do and turn your back and let them get on with it. It's bringing in a consultant and work with them. Like you're not going to expect them to know every little in and out of your business. They won't know that straight away like any employee wouldn't know that straight away. But to get the most out of them, you need to actually be very close. A lot of the time for me, sometimes I'm there and I feel like I'm not actually doing much, but I am. You're kind of validating. So a lot of the time the business owner, I think I want to do this and I want to do this and what do you think? And you're just having really a lot of banter and conversation and kind of brainstorming sessions to make sure that they're on track. And it's lonely running your own business. Mm. People forget that. It's really lonely. So sometimes, and this is where, you know, I do consultancy work, but I also do advisory work. And advisory work is sometimes just being that sounding board. And I did get a lot of that through COVID, a lot, a lot of late night phone calls. <laughs> yeah. Because the people are like, they get really concerned. They don't know everything. Do you know what I mean? And I think because you've got that experience coming across so many different businesses and different industries, you can see how different people operate and, and it really does help. Yeah. And it is scary to trust your business with somebody you've just met. Like it, it is scary and I understand that. But that, that's why too, do your research, make sure they are the right fit for your business. And if they are and you connect, I think that's where the magic starts to happen. Look, I'm a big believer that you don't need a massive payroll. You might have, I think, if you look at the past and you look at the future, you could have 70% of your wages as permanent employees and you've got 30% that you set aside to bring in experts as you need them. And part of that can be building something like an advisory board that you've got that high level expertise when you need it. Yeah, I think that's really important. So how does it work? Like are you in-house or do you stay out of house or is there combinations? What happens? Combination, it does depend on... Uh, what the project is, whether I need to be, like a lot of the time there's definitely workshops in-house and different time with different staff in-house. Sometimes I'm actually sitting with the person entering an order in a system just because I need to understand data in to understand data out. So sometimes I get right into the nitty gritty and other times it's, you know, definitely from afar and the team don't even know I'm really even there. So depends on the project, but the majority of my time is not in someone's office because if I'm in their office, am I just an employee? And sometimes that's needed and other times it's not. So majority is out of so that you stay emotionally disconnected as well. So you, mm. your decision making and your recommendations are very different to what they'd be if you're a full-time employee. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. That's actually a very interesting point that you make. So do you do like an audit? Like is that sort of how you go through? Like how do you uncover what you need to uncover about like what's going wrong or how guess, does it work? I guess you could call it an audit. I kind of refer to it as a bit of a business review and even if I'm doing just one section, you laterally need to think about what that means across all functions of the business. So for example, one recently that I looked at was actually a marketing review and a bit of a, you know, what are we doing and what can we improve on? But to do a good job of that, I actually needed to still understand the P&L and what marketing means to the sales and what stock means to sales. So I kind of had to tap into other areas that you probably wouldn't expect to look at for a marketing review. And marketing um, in this example is still customer service. So I actually looked at their logistics you know, how quick are people getting their parcels through the e-commerce? That is customer service. So one thing is usually many. <laughs> um, a full business review is the best results that you can get from bringing somebody external in because they're going to bring fresh ideas to every facet of your business. But if you're getting somebody in just to do one section, make sure they do fully understand how that function connects into all the other functions. Because when they all align, that's when the magic happens. It sounds like that's a common mistake that businesses make. Are there anything else that you can find from your like process or the picture that you paint that are other common mistakes that businesses often make? Yeah, it is a piece. It's back to the you don't know what you don't know. And when you do start digging in different areas, there's always a people element that comes into it. And I don't know what it is, but 
the team usually opens right up and half of what you uncover actually comes from the team on the ground, whether it's a cultural issue, whether it's a a skill gap issue that they sometimes they highlight and other team members and it's not to have a go at their other teammates, it's actually to highlight we'd be better as a business if we could close this gap. So what comes out from the team is actually usually what closes those underlying things that a business owner may not get from their team. So I don't know if it's an external person they just trust, but it, it's actually one of the most beneficial parts of having somebody somebody come in external is there's no threat. Mm. So the team are very honest and I think that, again, comes down to trust and, you know, if I'm confronting, well, they're clearly not going to open up to me. But, yeah, the common mistakes in businesses, nine times out of ten, is just not listening. It's interesting, is it? Like there's a, a chap that we know and have used called Billy Baxter who specialises in advertising and he says that there are eight pillars mm-hmm. and if you get seven right, then the money comes. You know, the yep. finance pillar is number eight and, and you need to get those seven, like you're saying, the staff, you know, all you need to get to your learn. product, you need to get yeah, yep. it all underway. So that's a, a very interesting point that you make. But I look at people in business today, it really is that moving feast, isn't it? Like, it's pretty crazy. And I think even putting 2020 to one side, like, what are some of the biggest hurdles that businesses are facing right now? Not understanding technology is a big one. And that's not just about making sure that their systems are right and future facing. It's actually understanding what's going on out in the market. So, you know, AI is a massive thing and it's going to hit the business world in a very positive way. So I'd say embrace it and start educating yourself, stay relevant. It's so funny that you mentioned that because last week we had Drew on and he mentioned the exact same thing. Like AI is something that everyone should be so like aware of and understand what it's going to do to impact their business what it can do to help their business too and it doesn't sometimes um, people think oh that'll just replace jobs redeploy those people to add value where you haven't used their skill sets I think it's dig into what's in your team and utilize them and get AI to do some of the hard grunt work that's what AI will do. Exactly. And you always need people, you know, like you always. actually need humans to ch- sense check the AI because it could be all very rational, but you do need that sense check. We find that with all of the programmatic buying and things like that that we do in media in the digital platforms, you still need a human intervention to sense check that everything is correct and it still makes sense to follow that particular path and you don't need manual adjustments or something. I totally agree and I think that I've always said you know science can give you a lot of your answers but if you haven't got the art coming into it that's where the people come in you know you can't program the art of business. No you can't. Well, not yet anyway. (laughs) Until we train these robots really well. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting because you're not equipped. A lot of people that go into business for themselves aren't equipped with degrees. No. You know, they're entrepreneurial. They've got those entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and you don't want to break that spirit. Never. But you've also got to think. Look, I always find it interesting. Do you find younger people who are in business are very different from older people? Yep. And what are the biggest differences between them? Okay, risk is one big thing. So as you get older, you're more risk adverse. And the younger people are actually more open to say what they don't know because they they can say, oh, because I haven't had the experience. They can use it as an excuse, I think. So they're more inclined to get external help. They're more inclined to say, I don't know enough about this. I've either got to go and learn it or I've got to bring somebody in to compliment my weaknesses. Older people are a little bit more guarded sometimes and I think that it's a real pity because if they had that same level of risk that the younger generation has got, they could be amazing. Like I look at everything that I know and if I could take that and package it up and sell it to a 20-year-old entrepreneur far out. I could buy islands, but anyway, (laughs) one day. (laughs) I'll call you Melinda. 
<laughs> <laughs> she can now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I that blew me away. The amount of money they're splitting up. I was just like, "Holy oh, shit!" Imagine the good you could do on the world. Well, she's doing it, isn't she? she? Is. You know, you got to yeah. give, you got to give them that. But I agree with you. You know, if you can package up what you know now, you know, as a younger person, it's actually really, you know, which is why the consultancy kind of works. Mm. And do you find that younger people are more likely to come and? sort of hire a consultant at the earlier end rather than at the end when it's like sort of all going belly up? Are they sort of a bit more proactive? They are. The The flip side is they think then they've got the knowledge and they don't then continue. Like they'll chop and change between people they work with more frequently, whereas an older generation, once they realise and see the value add, they're more inclined to then have a longer term working relationship, which is usually better for the business to have a bit of consistency. Now, how does a business overcome some of their challenges? Like you think you talked a bit about challenge and things like I take cash flow, for instance, you know, funding can often be really difficult, particularly for smaller businesses or service-orientated businesses. So how does a retail business, for example, what do they need to do to overcome cash flow challenges? Because we find in research those are some of the things that businesses talk to us about all the time. Cash flow is king and it always will be. I mean, your product's king as well, but cash flow is definitely up there. And if you're not managing your cash flow, it can sneak up on you. So just on cash flow for a second, I think it's really important for businesses to know where they're at and even if they're in a really good cash positive position and they've never had an issue with cash flow, they should still have a cash flow report in their business, even if it's just on a monthly, like a month end view of what you spent and what you've got coming. If you're kind of have a few tight months through the year, I'd run a weekly cash flow where you're actually still monitoring it weekly and looking at your future and what's coming. And if you're in a not so great position, daily cash flow. And I've had to do this before in a business. It was the best thing we did Mm. was to monitor the cash flow daily. And some people go, oh, that's so much work. It's really not. Once you've set it up and it's, you know, five minutes a day to maintain it, the visibility we had from that helped us make the right decisions, whether it was product purchases, it was negotiating trading terms with suppliers, it was what marketing we needed to do to generate more cash. So if you know your cash flow, the knock-on effect of your decision-making is way more informed. So I think it needs to be something that people manage really well. And if you see a tight cash flow month coming, then you can forward plan and think outside the box a little bit. You know, you could be a, a restaurant right now. Let's say it's Mother's Day this weekend. Well, maybe approach it a bit different and do a set menu because you're going to have a more profitable day and a less stressful day probably for your whole team Mm. if you've got a set menu. So think outside the square a little bit as to what events are happening out there in the market. Can I tag on to this? Even though I'm not a gifting business and, you know, I'm not going to be the where they go to buy mama flowers or something like that. How can you use what's happening as an event in the market and make something of it? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you on cash flow. If you actually understand how that system works, like I am a very good example of where in the past I let the finance team run all the, manage all that process, everything like that. (laughs) Well, it didn't. And so, and then being hands-on, like I had a, a finance guy who came in, Joel sat with me one day a week And he literally, he and I went right through and he taught me for 18 months how to go into that system, how to check everything. And I am in there every single day. It's probably your favourite report now. It is. Oh, like, you know, I get up very early in the morning. So people that know me know I'm up by three and I'm at my desk. And I absolutely, that's the first thing I do is check all the accounts, check what the flow was like, what's going to be happening next. And I know that system inside out, which I could not say I knew five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. So it stood us in really good stead last year. And so if you can actually understand that, that is a big part of business that I I think a lot of people, if they're not taught 
and they didn't understand that, particularly creative people like in our game. Yes. It's, you know, like it's like. It's the boring stuff. It is the boring <laughs> but stuff. But guess what? Everyone's got an inner nerd. Well, they do, don't they? Yes. Especially Especially people like me that love research. <laughs> it's not so inner, that one. <laughs> this is a really tricky question that I'm going to ask you, Kylie. How can you guarantee success and can you guarantee success or is that something that you kind of steer clear of? Oh, you know, are you going to win Powerball this week? (laughs) It's a bit like that. I hope so. I like to say that you can guarantee to an extent in the the sense that if a process is followed and a plan is put in place that the business is, you know, really workshopped and challenged that that is the best plan for the business and that comes back to all the pillars of being aligned. So each section, each function of a business has got its own goals to achieve. Now, if they all align, yeah, you're going to get success. All you need is one area to not be on its A game. You know, it could be the range is good, not great. Or it could be that, you know, COVID's impact your container availability out of China and you haven't got your stock in. So you can't walk in and guarantee anything in retail because you know, each day is a new day in retail, but you can set a plan in place that really is quite watertight. And if it's not quite going to plan, you do a quick revisit, quick reset. What do we need to do? What do we need to realign and get on with it again? So what are some of the questions that, um, or the largest concerns most people in business have? Okay. I think there's kind of three, yeah, three key ones. So usually I get, have I got the right people? Have I got the right stock in the right locations? And what system should I be working on? That's my biggest question. What system do I need? And I think every business has its own unique strength and weakness. And the ones that are performing well are protecting their strengths and they're working hard on their weaknesses. So, yeah, hard question to answer because every business has kind of got a different issue. But commonly I'm asked about those top three of people, stock and systems. Yeah, it's interesting. Look, I hate to focus on 2020 because I think that was the clusterfuck that should be just put to bed. Um, But I also think that it actually distracts the real issues that are going on in a business. I find it really interesting the number of businesses that have still been reliant on JobKeeper. Uh, for a lot longer than than other businesses because we were talking with producer Pat before, you know, the businesses that came that have bounced back have really bounced back quite quickly where other businesses have taken a lot longer. I mean outside of the obvious like tourism, you know, yeah. type scenario. So when I look at at what happened we in Australia, we had drought, we had bushfires, and our business was actually more impacted by bushfires, mm. you know, than I realised until I went back and really sort of focused on and looked at the patterns. And then followed by COVID-19. So I look at all of that and I wonder, what is that true impact had on business moving forward? Because it is, it's like a triple whammy. Do you know what yeah, I mean? It and it, it had a big knock-on effect across the board. Yeah, look, different industries hit in different ways. Mm. I look for me and the businesses I was working with through COVID came through really strong and out the other side loud and proud, which is I think came from their how they actually worked together and they shared ideas and businesses across like businesses that usually wouldn't even talk to each other were sharing ideas with each other and navigating JobKeeper at the start was probably one of the hardest things for most businesses. Everyone had questions, but the government hadn't yet came out with what it was and team members were asking questions. There was a lot for people to navigate. And you're right, it was on the back of some pretty big disasters in our country. So I think that, you know, the Aussie spirit, you get up and you get on with it. Mm. I think there's a lot to do with that that actually came through COVID and the businesses that are coming out the other end were smart about how they use JobKeeper. Like they didn't just abuse it and go tick, 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 put that on the Mm P&L. They actually utilised it and, you know, I saw businesses where they couldn't open their stores, they had staff sitting at home, they put them in training courses. They actually Mm -hmm. used the money for good so they've come out stronger at the other end. 
So, look, some industries are definitely hit harder. I think that it takes everyone to kind of get behind them now and the Australian community to really know where those regions are and think local. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. We work on a mutual piece of business yesterday and the way they pivoted was so fascinating, wasn't it? Like they really did keep themselves going and moving forward and they've won awards because of the work they did last year in a very difficult climate for them as a retailer. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? Such a positive outcome for them, not only as a business, but as individuals. And I think their decision-making came not not from a place of business it actually came from a place of we need to help like we've got a country who hasn't got masks mm. so they got on and they made them you know they actually their decision making came from a different place yeah which turned out to be a positive business benefit from yeah. them and that is an interesting thing isn't it businesses with heart yeah they are quite unique aren't they there's more out there than what people realize i think because mm. you just don't see it as a consumer when you walk into a shop, you don't see the empathy that a business owner's actually got and you you don't necessarily see what donations they're making in the background. There's way more happening than what businesses communicate to their consumer. I talk about this all the time and it's really like a big thing for me is brands need to have a specific message that goes out there about their cause-based activity. And yeah. I talk about it with anyone who will ever listen because it needs to be authentic, right? Like you can't just go out and blast like Procter & Gamble have done in the US. Look, like we're focusing on black families in America. That's not authentic. But if you do it in a way where it's like, actually, this is what we're doing. We're not saying that you should buy our products because of it. It's just a general this is what we're doing, here's why you should also be involved. I think that's a really great way for businesses to pull in people because if you're connected not only on like a I like your product state, if you're connected on a I like how you're attracting different people and how you're building the world and building on different people, that's going to get you far more sales and far more connection than you would with anything else. Definitely. And what does your brand represent? Mm. Therefore, what do you do as a business that socially adds value but also this whole sustainability conversation comes into play as well like yeah if you're not thinking in that space now you are already left behind so there's a big part coming then when it hits people will boycott businesses if they're not a part of it and it's already started to hit it's you know like you can see young and anyone in that Gen Z mentality are already boycotting people that don't actually stand for anything or that don't talk about it. And then they've yep. been left behind because people think that they're just a big conglomerate that doesn't care. Yeah, which is a pity because sometimes it's not the case. Yeah. They just don't scream it from the rooftops enough. And I think that there's a way to scream it from the rooftops depending on what the brand is and what they stand for. Just got to be a bit creative in your language. I do. I believe it's how they convey it because I don't think you can just tell people that you're good. No, I I think you actually have to convey that in a particular manner. Yeah. Uh, You know, I actually quite admire Unilever because Unilever have gone and put a lot of work into play, but they they don't necessarily brand it with Unilever or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So they're actually doing good from behind, but they've used it effectively with their staff. Yeah, And I think that's been amazing in their business partners and things like that. So the work that they've done there, I don't know whether or not it's translated at the other end at the consumer level, but they have done a lot of work in there globally. They call it Brands with Cause Mm. at Unilever. And I I agree with you. I don't know that it's translated, Mm. probably just because people are so distrusting of a large corporate, right? They're looking at it going, oh, you just want my money, which every company does at the end of the day. But I think they have done a really good job at, you know, incorporating that in their business. But what I've discovered is that most uh, organisations, the CSR and the marketing team are completely disconnected. The value isn't there in marketing the CSR initiatives. So they, this is where you get back to it, the pillars exactly. aren't aligned. So 
where's the strategy and where's the collaboration internally to get everyone on the one page and working towards one goal? Yeah. Because marketing aren't seeing, they're not seeing that as a sale opportunity, if no. that makes sense, but yeah. it's a branding opportunity. It is a branding opportunity. And I think that well, comes back. Well, it's a back, loyalty opportunity as well. Absolutely. It comes back to what we were talking about before with the brands, you know, before we went on air with the brands, you know, and how brand value is now there. Because what is the contribution of brand value to a company? Oh, geez, how do you measure that? Exactly. How do you measure it? We were talking about that with Drew, you know, last week. How do you actually measure the the value of a brand? For me, I would want to have a little bit of research and, you know, your net promoter score. Maybe, Maybe that. Every business will find a different metric to put on it, I guess. But, you know, some people think it's their followers on Instagram. I don't think that's the answer personally, but no. um, I think a net promoter score may be it's your quite, closest. It's quite interesting because I, I don't have the latest statistics, but I Sarah Lee, when they purchased a brand in, of bleach in New Zealand, it's mm. called Janola. When they purchased that brand, they tried to change it to White King and they couldn't do it. The New Zealand market just rebelled. Yeah. And it was the only bleach in the world that had 97% market share. So even grocery couldn't actually uh, penetrate that. So with their own house brand. So it didn't matter if it was cheaper. Uh, yeah. And New Zealand is quite unique. It's a bleach nation. So, yeah, I find that, that I found that brand equity you know, to be absolutely enormous. Number one, you can't change the name. And number two, even the grocery guys who undercutting, discounting, putting, moving stock off shelf, they could not even do that. They yeah. couldn't break that brand. And I so think how did a, you measure that? The client measured it by the fact that they retained their shelf space in there grocery and yeah. the volume that was, you know, the volume sales and things. So it came down to an actual Market tangible share. measure like that. And, they, and they've never changed it. Yeah. And in fact, in New Zealand, you don't talk about bleach, you talk about janola. Yeah, it's like Hoover versus vacuum. Absolutely. Just off topic slightly, how much do the changes in the market really impact business? So we talked about bushfires, we talked about, you know, COVID-19, but are businesses actually impacted by that or are they just not moving with the times to change and, you know, diversify themselves to a business that can react to the market? No, they're impacted, Mm. you know. A rainy day impacts a strip shop. Like it, it definitely impacts and you can track over time what those impacts are, but you've got to really use your data to do that. I think in preempty, I think the bigger thing is you can't change a past and, you know, if you miss sales one day, you're not going to be able to just make it up because you want to. You've got to then strategize and work forward again. So I think as these different impacts hit your business, what are you doing with it? It's kind of like that so what moment. So what's your future plan? Do you need to pivot anything that you did have in place? I think there's a big part of the economy, especially at the moment, that people do need to keep an eye on. I think it's really important to know what's happening out there and unfortunately listen to that boring news, Glenda. (laughs) I don't listen to it much either, but at the moment there's certain sections of it that I am probably closer to because a simple thing of house prices can impact consumer spending. Yeah, totally. They are feeling so much more confident than what they potentially could be in some areas and they're still spending because they're going, oh, the value of my house has gone up. But interest rates are holding, that's all helping. Is the bubble about to burst? Well, that's Not what I necessarily. question. I, th- I, think, I think there's a, you know, doomsday is coming mentality out there and look – I do think that will hit some businesses. I really do. I think there's a little bit more pain yet to come for some businesses. But the ones who are really active, knowing their numbers, right in amongst everything that's going on and staying really close to their business, they're doing everything they can to never let doomsday hit them. Mm. They're going to come out stronger. Yeah, I I agree with you. Government spending is, what, at 33% of the GDP at the moment, and we've got $700 billion worth of net debt in Australia. It came out in the last budget. So that coalition spending, it can't keep going. You know, sooner or later it has to actually stop. What happens to business when that's pulled? Depends on the business. If you're inventory heavy, 
and your spending, your sales drop, it can cripple you quickly because mm. that's your working capital. So I think if businesses are being very smart with the way they're flowing their inventory, then that will help them. But in other sectors, like if spending stops, what happens to a restaurant? Mm. You know, people are still going to eat. They're still going to go out. They're still going to get takeaway. But if they're not getting as much, what do you do to keep your overheads at bay? Because your rent's your rent. Your wages are your wages. You can scale them up and down in certain businesses, but your overheads, you've got to work out what am I fixed and what are my variable expenses and be completely across it, which comes back to your cash flow conversation. Mm. So is doomsday coming? I don't have a crystal ball. I like to think I've got one, but I'm kind of dreaming. I don't think anyone's got one. I don't think anyone's truly got the answers. However, from when you do look at what the economists are coming out with and how they're mapping trends, there are some industries that are still going to be hit harder than others. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Look, you know, these businesses who change and they adapt and they often will change their positioning, they'll often change their name, for instance. Is that a negative or a positive? Oh, unless there's a very good reason to change your name you'd nearly better off to go and start a new brand. Like, I don't, you know, name change is a big call if you do something like that. I think the advantage of a name change is you've already got a following, I guess, that you can convert across. But you'd have to have a really good reason to want to do that. You'd nearly be saying there's no equity in my brand. I find it incredible. So I think it's Fuji Xerox is going through a massive name change at the moment. And I'm just like, Why? Why? I don't know. I don't believe in change for change's mm. sake. I think it's a big waste of everyone's time and energy. Also, <laughs> the money that you that has to go into it, yeah. that you've got to change not only your product or your services but also your marketing. You can't use any of anything Nothing. that you've produced from the last few years. It's not even like a slight end frame change. It's like literally every single thing that you've done, just throw it in the bin. You'd nearly be better off to run two parallel and transition than to – Flick it. You have fake mm. buy one of the other ones. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. So what are some of the interesting trends you're seeing in business? Oh, interesting trends. I'd probably say it is around the AI and the ability to use some of the tools that are available out there to make clearer, cleaner decisions. And the businesses that are using, you can have the crappiest system, right, absolute crap system and everyone in the business hates it, but you can put over the top of it this shiny little new tool that they're out there in the market and you've got full visibility of your business. So you can have a crap back end but a beautiful front end in your systems and I think that there's probably not enough of that happening out there. There's problems in businesses There always will be but it's knowing what they are and if you're not using the data that you have available, you're not making clear decisions. In the retail industry, what businesses are on the rise? Oh, what types of businesses? Oh, there's a number of them. I think There's a lot of small brands actually because brand loyalty has changed in the consumer. So people are happy to get a product they like, not necessarily a brand they like unless it's a top-end luxury. So there is definitely a lot of emerging brands that are coming in and some are building on that and some are a bit of a one-hit wonder and in and out and off they go again. So there's always going to be a need for people to buy clothes. There's always going to be somebody who wants to treat themselves to beautiful shoes and beautiful jewellery and guys wear their shoes out and they have to go and get a new pair. You know, the, people are still going to be consumers. Mm. Their decision-making is not the loyalty they used to have. You know, it's nothing like it used to be. So you have to be on point with knowing who your customer is and how you speak to them and what media you use to get their attention. And that's where the conversions then come into play. So, and like homewares has gone nuts because of COVID. Like everyone's redesigned their whole house. So yeah. I think that it doesn't mean then that everyone should go and jump into homewares because if that's not your core business, then 
stick to what you know and stay in your lane. Yeah, I find that because you get a lot of fashion houses trying to move into homeware. And yeah. I, I often find why. I, you know, yeah. I, to me, I understand why they're doing it, but I often think why in the consumer's eye would I want that cushion from X, you know, like. Yeah, the, the top end loyal, like full loyal consumers, mm. that, that can make sense, but it's not going to be high volume. And it mm. can make sense in a flagship store where you're just making it more beautiful. But, you know, I've heard a lot of talk of people say, oh, I'm going to jump into furniture because, you know, there's still a lot of new build house, like there's a lot of new properties being built in the country. They've got to furnish these houses. So furniture, homewares are still on the rise, but it doesn't mean you want to just jump into that space unless you know what you're doing. What about competition? Like how do you learn from your own competitors? Are there people that you follow or even seize the opportunity to increase your market share? Okay. I follow my competitors like a hawk, like I watch everything they're doing and I suppose the space that I work in, I watch things that I'm not even working in, so I'm I'm probably not like everyone else. But I think it's really important to know what your competitors are doing. Be aware, but don't follow. Unless there's something there that makes sense for your brand and where you're going and targeting your consumer, just because somebody else is doing it does not mean that everyone needs to jump on the bandwagon. I think following can be costly if it's not strategic. I love that piece of advice because I find a lot of clients that we have immediately say, oh, but my competitor's doing X, like why shouldn't we be doing it? And oftentimes the conversation that we have to have is, well, it's actually not authentic for you to do or it's not something that you should even be jumping into. So Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Or sometimes too, like their operations and logistics are not set up to do it. Absolutely. So you're setting yourself up to fail if you're just gonna copycat. You know what I find really interesting? I've been interviewing a whole lot of grads lately. And uh particularly from the finance sector because it's all the analytical side and things like that. And nearly every second one has developed an app. Like, seriously, it's just if I had a dime for every time they came and they spoke to me about their app that they've created and very logical, a lot of the reasons why that they've done that, you know, they're obviously seeing that there's a gap. Are there big gaps still in business that aren't fulfilled? Yeah. I think there's a lot more that is going to come in the future and it comes from these amazing, innovative, creative minds that come up with these amazing ideas and sometimes they come up with them and they don't do anything with it or they don't know how to do something with it so they're wasted. But um, I do believe there's a lot more yet to come in that space and at the moment it's in the way of an app and it's an app connecting many things in the background but can also be, you know, back to my original thing of every person I work with asks me what systems should I be on. You know, if you think about it right now, if you're an e-com business and you decide to do a pop-up store, all you need is a square device. Like you, you, mm. you don't need the whole ERP system. You need to know your inventory management. But, you know, there's certain things you do and don't need depending on the size of your business. And I think everyone looks at other businesses and go, oh, they've got it, so I need it. But I think there's something coming in the future for especially retail where it takes a whole level out all those um, service providers out there will be hating me right now, but I do think <laughs> that it's going to go away. Like you can put your products in a box at a checkout and it scans it. You know, the world is changing and it's moving really, really quickly. So there is a lot more innovation to come. A lot of it will be through apps and other things will be, you know, cloud-based, quick, easy, accessible systems. If anything, it's just going to help retailers too. Like I can't imagine that it's going to be doing anything that's going to make it worse for them or less profitable because once you have these systems in place and they're humming, then you're good to go. Yeah, definitely. And they do need to invest in that. But again, it comes back to their education. If they don't know what's available, then you just, again, don't know what you don't know and you still run on your system that you had from the 1970s. There's a lot of that out there. Do you think the social store will actually take from the web store? Like, do you think the websites will die? Because, like, oh, you know, we see all the time that media most useful, particularly in retail, 
it's the website. So is that going to be replaced at all? I think that comes back to, you know, if you've got that scan, that like that RFDI or whatever they're called on the label that scans, it could be as simple as I like that, put my iPhone near it, walk out of the shop, like definitely. But it just needs somebody to build this. And I'm sure it's all been worked on in China. It's amazing what you see being built in China. So I'm all for embrace technology. My inner nerd definitely comes out with that because it solves problems. And then you're freeing people's time to not check, is the report in front of me correct? You know, that's the worst thing to get a report given to you and you don't trust the numbers because you're not sure if it's right because it's been pulled out of a system and somebody's manipulated it in Excel. All of that can go away and it can go away now. There's already systems out there to do that. So how does our standoff with China at the moment, how does that impact some of what you're saying, these new technologies coming into Australia and things like that? Oh, gee, you're asking the wrong person. I'm all for global. (laughs) So um, I think it is going to impact. My personal view is I don't agree with it because, you know, that – to me, let's be really honest, to me it's a level of racism. Like let's be real, what is being built in China is so innovative. I actually did a trade mission to China, it was two years ago now, and I was lucky enough to go to the Huawei head office. It's its own city. They've got their own university on campus. They've got their own gym. They've got their own schooling, their own accommodation. It is literally a city where they bring in the best from all over the world to create this new technology, whether it's robotics, you know, the 5G that they tried to roll out. But politics has to be there, which it will be there. And unfortunately, it comes back to trust. It's not there at the moment between the countries. Mm. You know, I'm not a political person, so you're probably asking the wrong person. But ultimately, whether China build it, whether Russia builds it, whether Australia builds it, if it works for the business world to move forward and save money and actually just get on with living. Why wouldn't you do it? Exactly. Kylie, thank you so much for spending your time and your morning with us in the studio. It's been absolutely brilliant. And the knowledge that you have just imparted will be fascinating for many of our listeners. So I really thank you from the heart for that. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. You're always welcome. If you want to get in touch with Kylie Murphy, we'll put her contact details in our bio. As always, you can contact GW via our very own Richard Turner or RT as we lovingly call him. Uh, We're also going to put his link in our bio as well. So again, thank you so much. It was great having you here. It's great being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. Do come back now. 